Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and guys, I have an unbelievable guest for you this week. Steve Peters is somebody who has made a huge impact on the world and all just by being who he is. And that is the thing I love the most. I love when people uh, make a difference just organically, when they're the kind of person that says or does things just in their natural way that uh, change things for other people. And he's going to tell us about that, about, uh, you know, people he's affected directly. And I've had a couple of similar experiences with my music, with uh, the Mental Sauna series, where I can really understand where he's coming from um, in that light. But man, a very brave guy to take a step into a world that I think most people would have been very skeptical of going and doing an interview, a live interview with Tammy Faye Baker. I mean, uh, wow, that that to me takes some serious guts. And I really respect the fact that he did that. But more, I'm excited at the results that it had. And I do want to point out something that I referenced in this episode. Uh, We were talking about the Reverend Jerry Falwell, and I bring up a story that I had heard. And I say in the show that I don't know whether it's true. It would make sense if it did uh, and that I would research it. Well, I have researched it. I have not found any connection to this story being true. So I don't want to put the impression that uh, Jerry Falwell was the one that created the FCC, because from what I found, it looks like the FCC was created in 39, which I think kind of, you know, outdates him a little bit anyway, as you know, just, I don't know what year he was born, but he certainly wouldn't have had any clout as an infant. Um, So when we get to that point in the show where I talk about the creation of the FCC, please keep in mind that it was a story I heard that, like I said, I cannot substantiate. And I'm very honest and open about that in the show. I say, I don't know this for sure. I don't want to say that this is fact. I need to research it. And I have. And that's where we come out. So uh, you could just happily ignore me babbling on about that when we get to that point in the show. Something created it. But I don't know what the behind the scenes premise for we need to start censoring things was. Um, That's kind of a baffling mystery to me. But in any case, uh, I was so delighted to get some time to talk to Steve. So uh, it's it looks to be a pretty amazing movie. I don't know what the the uh, inspiration was to tell this story at this particular point in time. But I'm glad we're doing it because when you hear what Steve has to say about the interview and what happened post-interview, I'm really glad that this is something that is, uh, you know, going to gain some attention. And honestly, I mean, I pretty much feel like anything Jessica Chastain does is going to gain a lot of attention. And she plays Tammy Faye Baker. And just from the clips I've seen, uh, it looks fantastic. She's uh, she's somebody that I think is a tremendous actress. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's in it. Um, and we'll get to who plays Steve in the movie. And it's weird, too. I, when I was editing, I listened back to it and I, and I said, your character. And I want to apologize to Steve because it's just so common for me to say when we're talking about uh, somebody portraying a person in a film or a television show, uh, I always use the word character. Obviously, this isn't your character. This is you who you actually are in real life. And, uh, you know, he was talking about the accuracy of the interview. So uh, I apologize for for the use of the term character. If that upset or offended you in any way, I certainly could understand if it would have. Not my intention. It's just the, uh, you know, the the word that immediately comes to mind when I think about somebody on screen. Um, So uh, I hope that you understand that. 
Apart from that, guys, uh, I want to get right into this interview because it's really amazing. There are a lot of uh, really important things to say. And I'm just going to set the tone by saying very early 1980s. Uh, you know, I was born in 72. So, you know, you're talking like the eight, eight to 10 years old range for me. A lot of stuff I didn't know, a lot of stuff I didn't understand. Um, a lot of stuff we were exposed to in media that wasn't explained to us in a way that we could uh, break it down intelligently and understand what was really going on. A lot of political stuff, a lot of religious stuff. So think early 1980s. Think about the fact that AIDS was publicly a fairly new concept. It was terrifying. We had no real information. Sound familiar? Um, we really lived under the guise that, uh, you know, mosquitoes could give you AIDS. And of course, growing up in Southern Michigan, <laughs> which is mosquito country, uh, it was definitely something to, uh, to worry about. So, I mean, we, we always, you know, whenever you felt the mosquito land on you, you couldn't smack your arm and, and smash it fast enough. But if you think that it could give you AIDS, I mean, you're, you, you could, you couldn't react any faster. And, you know, for someone to have gone through what Steve did and be, uh, you know, a, a person who was tested on because we didn't know, you know, because there was so much that was uncertain and unclear. And I have to thank Allison Argram when she was on the show, we talked about how she was an advocate for helping to find out what the real information was, help get that out to the public. And um, yeah, it was it was a different world back then. So kind of go into this with that time frame in mind, because that's really where um, we're, we're kind of starting off with Steve's story. So I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope it makes you think. I really appreciate Steve taking some time and also for giving some extra time uh, to tell a, a story uh, as we end the show that I think that you guys will enjoy. It's really sweet. And uh, here, without further ado, is the interview. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have had some pretty amazing people on this show, I have to say, but I have never had anyone on the show who I've heard being interviewed and used the line, the first time I died, and then went on with their story. Uh, so casually, it, it's absolutely amazing. And let's just welcome him to the show because he's going to have a lot of just absolutely amazing things to talk about today. Let's bring on Steve. Steve, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. I listened to your uh, your episode that came out yesterday with Allison Arngram. Of course, we're airing this a lot later because of contractual issues. But uh, I, you guys obviously are friends. You seem so well together. But when I heard you say that, just so casually, the first time I died, that really hit me hard. <laughs> well, it hit me hard at the time, too. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. 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 No, I've I've had five near-death experiences. And uh, fortunately, they've been able to bring me back each time. And uh, and and what I just I, I, I've always been amazed at how incredibly peaceful and joyful and loving those experiences are. And uh, I, it's so wonderful that uh, when I come back into my body, there are times when I am just absolutely angry, pissed, you know, <laughs> like, sure. oh, my God, darn. Uh, <laughs> but um, I also I, I was telling this to another journalist and and uh, and she asked me, well, if it's so great over there, why do you keep coming back? And I I just blurted out because I love life. I don't want to miss anything. Yeah, I, really I love don't. that. 
You know, it's yeah. it's funny. I, I know this is going to be a weird segue, but uh, when people talk about ghosts and and ghosts that just hang out and, you know, sometimes they say they don't know they're dead. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense, because if you start having a conversation with somebody and they completely ignore you and you go to somebody else and they completely ignore you, you're going to start <laughs> questioning your existence. Uh, yeah. But, but my question would be, why? Why would you want to hang around if you're actually done here and you can't interact why would you want to hang out and and just be a visitor? But for you, it's a little different because you can interact. Uh, I would have to think that that all of these things would just inspire a huge zest for life. But Absolutely. I can also see people being like, well, you know, this sucks. My life sucks. And just being beaten down by it. Yeah. Well, that happens. I know. But uh, I just I've always had this love of life that just seems to be uncontainable sometimes. And uh, my mother used to talk about how I would sit on the front steps of our house uh, when I was two and sing and sing and sing about how wonderful God is and how great life is. And and so it, it, it started early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, it seems to me just from the research that I've done on you, it seems to me that the secret to your sustaining life, the way that you have against all the odds is really your mindset, just that I, I love life, I'm not giving up, and just staying focused on I'm going to make it through this. Right. And and I I learned early on that it's really important to keep hope alive. And hope happens when we discover that there is a lot we can do to help ourselves. I mean, when I was first diagnosed with AIDS in 1982, uh, and 1983 and 1984, the diagnoses just kept coming and coming and coming and uh, until I was finally diagnosed as having eight months to left to live with stage four lymphoma and Kaposi's sarcoma. Anyway, um, in, in the midst of all of that, I discovered that even though there were absolutely no treatments and nothing, the, the, the medical world offered nothing. I, I remember my doctor saying, you people in the church have more to offer than we do in medicine right mm-hmm. now. Uh, and, and so it became my mission to uh, stay alive long enough for them to find a way to manage the disease, which is what uh, my doctor told me would happen one day, and indeed it did happen. But she also told me, you know, it seems like everybody dies from AIDS at this point in 1984, but not everyone is going to die from AIDS. There are no 100% fatal illnesses in medicine. And and if one in a million are going to survive it, why not believe that you are that one in a million and act accordingly and do everything you can to create the conditions for healing in your body and in your life. And so I set out to do just that. That's beautiful. I I love that. And it's interesting thinking in terms nowadays, because ever since things like The Secret started coming out and people really started looking at their mindset, and then you've got all these business programs like The Millionaire Mindset and things like that. Right. Uh, looking at it now, this is a fairly common practice, but looking at it in 1982, there weren't really things like that out there. Well, there was some, but uh, there was there was nothing about AIDS. There was a lot written about people who'd beaten cancers they weren't supposed to beat and uh, that were supposed to have killed them. And so I 
studied all the books I could find about uh, about people who'd beaten cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put together my own wellness program from that. And and it helped me stay alive. Uh, it helped me to be healthy enough so that when uh, my doctor, Alexandra Levine, uh, had a medicine that they wanted to try on people with AIDS, it was the first antiviral they tried against uh, against P- against HIV, and uh, I was invited to be patient number one on that on that trial. It was a it was a drug called Suramin. Was it a tough decision to say, okay, I'll be your test subject? Yes, it was, and she gave me a lot of wonderful guidance about that. She said to talk to everybody you know, and get their opinions about whether you should do this or not. And then uh, come back to me in a month and close your eyes and listen to your heart. And what I discovered was that a lot of my acquaintances, people that I kind of knew, but you know, were peripheral to my logical family uh, and biological family, uh, people told me, people who were acquaintances told me, don't do it. They're trying to kill all of us gay people with AIDS. And now they're going to try to kill us with these medicines. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing sure. And you, 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 why give your body to science when science is trying to kill us? Blah, blah, blah. And then the other people, (laughs) the people who were really close to me said, well, Steve, you've always been a kind of living on the edge kind of guy. Why don't you go for it? It, and if it's the, the answer, then you're there for it. And uh, I, I liked what the, they said. I liked what those, those friends and family were saying. Mm-hmm. So I did close my eyes and listen to my heart when I went into the room with Dr. Levine a month later. And I opened my eyes and said, yes. Well, I can understand the other side uh, that you, sure. you were first talking about. Because first, you've got your family and friends that they don't want to lose you. So I get that. I get right. the the conspiracy theory because at the time and, yes. and to the audience, you guys have to think about the time frame here in 1982. Exactly. You did not talk about being gay. This was something that if you were, you didn't tell your close friends. It was a long time before people really started to feel comfortable saying this is who they are, even though this this just pisses me off about our our history and society, because we talk about, you know, what a free and open nation we are, how great it is and everything. And yet you can't talk about being gay. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I I feel so bad for what all of you guys had to go through in that time because you weren't allowed to be who you are. Well, that, that you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I think that that is the general image of what it was like in the 70s and 80s. And, and I have to tell you my experience with it. I came out in 1975. Oh. And and I thought that it was a wonderful time to be gay. There was a, a whole wave of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of LGBT people coming out uh, after Stonewall, which was in 1969, the, the Stonewall riots. And, and there were all kinds of people who came out when Anita Bryant mounted her hate campaign against gay rights. And uh, there were just huge numbers of people in those parades and those demonstrations and saying, we're here, we're queer, we're not, we're not going away. And, and Harvey Milk was our, our inspiration 
And when he was assassinated in what was that, 1978, 79, uh, it galvanized the gay community once again. There, and, you know, the 70s were a great time to be gay. I had a blast. I, I think a lot of us gay men and lesbians did have a blast in those days. It was, it, you know, the, the, there was no AIDS, so we didn't have to be careful about sex. And we weren't. <laughs> and <laughs> there was a lot of, of uh, fun times to be had and a lot of partying. I was in my 20s and, and uh, it suited me just fine. And I came out to my parents uh, in 77 and they were very loving. My dad said, I love you. Nothing can change that. And uh, my family was very accepting and I found nothing but love and acceptance. And I think part of that was because I put it out there that I was going to accept nothing but love and acceptance. But that was the 70s. And then so I and I was out and proud. I was a gay activist in the 70s. I became a minister with the Metropolitan Community Churches. And I did a lot of media, a lot of TV interviews about being a gay man and what and how wonderful I felt about being a gay man and that God loved me just the way I am and all of that. And so when AIDS happened to me, I, it wasn't a huge step for me to decide to do media interviews about being a person with AIDS. And so for, uh, for a lot of, of 1984 and into 85, I was one of the main people the, the one of the only people with AIDS who spoke publicly about it uh, in the media. Uh, well, I have so, to say, though, that's pretty brave because especially in the media, it seems like that was a lot of the, well, maybe more in the church side of things, um, you know, like you're you're a sinner or you're, you know, yeah, you know, God's against God's you feeling. Yeah. AIDS was God's punishment. Right. Well, right. And I guess, I'm sorry, and, I, and I'm glad that you had that experience. I guess for me, because I was born in 72, so I was pretty young during this time you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But the perception that I got from what media I saw and was exposed to, and of course, we were churchgoers back then, right. um, it, it was very much like this is, you know, this is because you've been bad and this is why this is happening to you. Sure. And I, I guess as just being the person I am, I don't understand why anyone should care whether you're straight, gay, turned on by things that are the color purple, uh, <laughs> you know, like, why is it anybody's business? Why is it an, even an issue? You exactly. should just be allowed to be who you are. As exactly. long as you're not hurting other people, you know, like, because I, I, you know, if you listen to true pro crime podcasts or anything like that, there are plenty of things that, that make people happy that hurt other people. And that's definitely uh -huh. not allowable. But if, right. if you're just being you and you're not hurting anybody, then I don't see why anyone should care who you are. Of course. I agree. And and I felt that way then. And I still feel that way now. And uh, that is that is what I brought to the Tammy Faye Baker interview that I did in, in 1985. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I insisted that they treat me with respect and and not try to bash me over the head with the Bible or anything that like that that conservative Christians tended to do. I mean, we live in a country that has a long history of Puritanism, and we we do not have the same sex-positive 
uh, culture that Europe does, for instance. Right. Uh, and uh, and I think that my interview with Tammy Faye Baker in 1985 was a real turning point in all of that because it was the first time that a conservative evangelical televangelist gave a positive and affirming interview to a gay pastor with AIDS, a gay man with AIDS. And it changed a lot of people. Uh, it had a huge impact that I wasn't even really aware of at the time. Uh, but now looking back on it and hearing about it, and I've heard about it all through the years and people have come up to me for all through those years saying that they, the, the interview that they heard on PTL with Tammy Baker changed their life because they suddenly realized they could be gay and Christian. And they suddenly realized that there were some Christians who would embrace them. Uh, and so it, and I've had, I've had a couple of people even tell me that that interview saved them from committing suicide because they were so ashamed of, of their homosexuality. Uh, and the interview changed their minds. It changed, uh, Jay Baker, Jim and Tammy's son, uh, is a friend of mine. And he has told me that it changed their entire family wow. that, uh, Tammy, after my interview with her started taking, Jay and his sister, Tammy Sue, who were, I think, 10 and 12 at the time, uh, she started taking them to uh, metropolitan community churches, to gay pride events, to uh, hospitals and hospices, to visit people with AIDS. She just took them by the hand and showed them that there was a whole other world out there and that she believed, as she said, uh, in, in the, as I said in the interview, I said, you know, I believe that God loves me. Jesus loves me just the way I am. And it, it's interesting that she picked that up. And in this new movie that's about to come out about her with Jessica Chastain as, as Tammy, she, the last line of the movie is that line. She, she, said, she turns to the camera and says, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Wow. And uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm very interested to see this movie because I remember seeing them on television, but I remember more the, you know, the Sunday morning sermon type of course, shows yeah. that they had. Uh, I don't remember seeing your interview growing up, but I saw, uh, you know, I've seen some of the clips of it recently. And uh, yeah, I, I love the way that you held yourself together. I think I would have been on pins and needles waiting for them to find that route to attack me. Well, I... I went into it thinking positively and I expected to have a positive experience with Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, and I had one, it was challenging. I mean, she asked a lot of what you and I might consider to be silly questions. Uh, like what makes you think you're gay? Why? why? <laughs> she asked me what, why, what, why did you think there was no hope for you to be straight? And maybe you just haven't given women a fair try. Uh, and I mean, just all kinds of questions. They were the right questions for her audience. Right. And fortunately, I had experience as a public speaker and doing media before that I knew how to answer those questions. But uh, uh, it, she was she was trying to get the information out that that uh, 
you know, it's okay that that Jesus loves us just the way we are. And yeah, I I would agree. Those I I think I would have just sat there with my jaw hanging open going, I can't believe that just came out of your mouth. But at the same point, (laughs) there probably was a good side to her asking those questions because they do break the ice on on those topics. Sure. Absolutely. You know, I I think it's just easy to assume that people should or or naturally would think a certain way. But but as we've seen, there's so many people that think in every different direction. I think those conversations do become very important. Right, right, absolutely, and this one was incredibly important. I, I, I just, I'm just amazed how it's reverberated through the years, and people have reached out to me for interviews in recent years, uh, primarily about that, about the Tammy Faye Baker interview, and and people tell me extravagant compliments about what a landmark moment that was in in history, in the history of the church, and and the history of the LGBT movement and all of that. And, and I I just remember coming away from the interview and driving home with my friend thinking, oh my God, I thought, I wish I'd said this and I wish I'd said <laughs> that. I wish I'd put this that way. And I'm so glad nobody I know will ever see this. <laughs> <laughs> right. That worked out well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. But But the fact is you didn't turn it down. Uh, you decided to go for it. And I love that you did that. I mean, obviously, you didn't go into it knowing what it would go on to change for so many people. But you could have easily said, you know what, that just does not sound like a forum I want to be a part of. I know what you people are trying to do and just said no. You know, I had watched enough of PTL shows. uh, My neighbor, Lucia, and I used to sit and watch and, and and giggle and laugh and and be stunned by some of the theology we heard coming out of their mouths and and the 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 over the top fundraising and all of that but i sensed i i somehow knew that she was different and and i i i was eager for the opportunity to go on the show because i thought that i could convey a message to her audience that they might not otherwise hear so i was excited to do the interview i mean sure i had my nerves about it and uh uh i was i i i i made a lot of assurances with their with her producer that it would go out live for one thing so they couldn't edit it oh smart yeah and i also insisted that uh, i was a gay man i was I was proud of that. I feel God loves me and I didn't want to be challenged on that. And she didn't challenge me on that. Mm-hmm. She, she, she didn't say God hates you. And, uh, or she didn't go into, you know, AIDS is God's punishment or anything like that. And I, I told them beforehand that I, I, I just wouldn't tolerate that. I, I would, I would talk about it if it came up, but uh, I just was not, eager to go there and i wanted it to be a positive interview they hooked me up by satellite with uh with her just before the interview so i had like three minutes to talk with her and she was just as sweet and loving and and caring and compassionate as she could be and i think that's who she basically was well i'm hoping that this movie will really give good insight and and accurate insight into the real world Uh, behind what we saw on television, because I think people do in general have a very bad impression of her. Um, I was pretty young. And like I said, I I have minimal interaction with with seeing her. 
So wow. I, I just remember a lot of makeup and just, just the premise yeah. of their show just always felt like any of those church oriented shows always felt very judgmental and give me money. And I can, you know, the Lord will save you if you just do this for me kind of feel. And I don't know that that's even a fair assessment to be honest, because I don't think I was old enough to really understand what I was seeing. So I don't, I don't want to say that that's a fact because I really don't know, but certainly the impression I got, because this is also a time when Billy Graham was out there and, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing going on where it really was about, just give me money so I can buy another mansion. Sure. And, and Billy Graham doesn't particularly like the gays, I'm afraid. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> right, he was, yeah. Or he didn't like the gays, and neither does his son, Franklin Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're kind of bugaboos to our community. But, uh, you know, they're not going to stop us from being who we are. Right. They're not going to stop us from believing that God loves us. I, we live in a land that believes in freedom of a religion. That means... I'm free to believe that God loves me just the way I am, that God loves me as a gay man and that God loves my love. Well, doesn't it say in the Bible that God loves all his children? That's right. Of course. It doesn't. Yeah. There's no parentheses that says except gay people or except, you know, anything else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Jesus never says a word about homosexuality. If it was such a concern, you'd think he'd have said something. Sure. But there's nothing. Right. There's nothing. That's that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of the uh, part of the lecture that I gave to the hotline training about the Bible and homosexuality, uh, and uh, help trying to educate the AIDS hotline trainees about how to answer questions about gays and the Bible, and uh, and so that's what Allison stood up and said. But I thought we weren't supposed to talk to people about things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you're if somebody's going to get you fired from a job, you could do worse than Allison Arngram. Well, that's right. And we became <laughs> very close friends. And as a matter of fact, I officiated at her and her husband's uh, wedding. That's right. Bob, who was uh, the director of the AIDS hotline in Southern California. And uh, so I married the two of them. That is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the movie's going to come out here in the middle of September. I've got the link to the trailer in the show notes. I personally, I love Jessica Chastain. I think she's great at selecting roles. So I oh. have no doubt she's going to do great in this movie. She, I, I saw the movie last week and she is fantastic. She's amazing. Oh, excellent. Astounding. Brilliant. Uh, I believe that is it Randy Havens from Stranger Things is playing you in the movie. That's right. Yes. Uh, he's a great actor. My yes, question for you is, did you get uh, any element of th- your character or your script or your part of the script has to be uh, approved by you or you have to, you have certain control over how you're portrayed? No, I had nothing to do with the making of the film. I didn't even know that the film was being made until it was already in post-production. Wow, uh, and uh, and so I, I learned about it from Jay Baker, uh, Jim and Tammy's son, and uh, I was thrilled to find out about it. I I contacted the the studio and said, "Hey, I'm still alive. I'm still here," <laughs> and and uh, and they were excited to hear from me, and and uh, we've had a very good relationship. Oh, that's uh, good. Since then, yeah. What yeah. was it like watching your yourself being portrayed by someone? Well, it's a little surreal. Uh, yeah, and, uh, I would think. Particularly because he, 
they the script uses our interview word for word so they didn't change anything for the film i, I mean they only use like three or four minutes of it but it's it's uh it's word for word and randy havens does a great job playing me i thought he was terrific um and uh i just really enjoyed the film so much and I liked the way that they used the interview in the film as a real turning point. Um, and and uh, Jerry Falwell was standing backstage while Tammy was interviewing me, uh, trying to, uh, well, he lost it, basically. <laughs> and, and that's in the trailer, actually. Uh, he, he just couldn't stand what Tammy was doing with me. And that was the beginning of the end for PTL. Right. Uh, yeah. And talk about another person with some incredibly heavy influence. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, I could be wrong, but wasn't he the one that kind of inspired um, the uh, uh, the FCC? Oh, I don't know. I don't know that story. I'm going to have to, to look it up and be sure. But okay. I know that there was uh, uh, someone in the clergy who was listening to the radio and they heard something they didn't like. And instead of just changing the dial, they reached out to the radio station and complained about it being inappropriate and that people shouldn't hear this. And uh, and that is the story as I understand it. And again, oh. I I can't say this is fact because I'm going to have to research it. But that yeah. was the story that I heard is how the FCC got started saying, um, OK, we're going to start regulating what you can and can't say on the radio. Interesting. Wow. It wouldn't surprise me if it was him because that yeah. that's kind yeah. of on par with something I think he would do. Oh, completely in character. Yes. But but here I go again. We live in the freest nation, except for all the things that we're not allowed to hear and do. (laughs) Right. Uh, I have a question about the Smithsonian for you. But before I get to that, uh, I do want to note that you do have a book out called I'm Still Dancing. And I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes. Alison Arngram was kind enough to host that on her site. Uh, And you have another project in the works. Can you talk about that yet? Or is it too early? I do. No, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, well, I'm finished with the third draft of my memoir. Uh, My job during COVID was to sit here in my apartment and write my memoir. Mm -hmm. And it's been through three drafts. I've been working with an editor and now it's in the hand of a literary agent. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, uh, we can get it out there. It's called My Journey to Joy an AIDS memoir. And uh, I'm hopeful that it will get published around the time that the film comes out or not long thereafter. Oh, great. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I begin the book talking about Tammy Faye and I end it talking about the film and, and all of that. So yeah, I'm excited about it. It, it, it. I've been meaning to write my memoir for years and I finally, COVID gave me the opportunity you know, I, I really appreciate people that have taken advantage of the time that we've been allotted through all of this. It's yes. a horrible thing that's gone on, mm-hmm. but you can either wallow in it or you can do something with it. Yeah, exactly. So good for you for taking the time. I'm going to be really interesting, interested to read this. I well, would think you. that with all the interviews that you've done over the years, uh, mm-hmm. it would seem like there's a lot to be able to pull from just from the stories you've already told going, okay, I need to tell this story. I need to tell that oh, story. But yeah. d- did you find as you were writing it that, oh, you know what? I forgot all about this. And that led to right. this and that and all yes, other things. Exactly. Exactly. I kept remembering things that I I. I had not thought about for years. And I thought, oh, my God, this is important. I need to put this in. 
And and my first draft came out to be 790 pages long and like 188,000 words or something wow. like that, which is way too long, way too long. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. So, uh, so I, uh, the second draft was, oh, down to 124,000 words. And this third draft is about 95,000. Okay. So I'm getting there. Yeah. Uh, I I think, uh, I think under a hundred thousand is probably pretty reasonable for somebody who's had such an interesting life as you have. Well, I got, I hope so. I hope you're right. Uh, (laughs) Well, we'll see, I guess. We'll see. Uh, It it had to be an emotional roller coaster, though, to put this together. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. It takes reliving what you've been through. And I've been through some tough times in my life. And uh, a lot of it due to AIDS. And uh, I had to revisit all of that and and, uh, revisit all the grief of losing so many friends and and seeing so many young men die of the same disease I had, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Totally. It, it, and I'm, I'm getting to that point too, where I'm looking back at all the people that uh, either I've grown up admiring or learning from, or just people that I've known that have died from suicide and drugs and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the list is getting far too long, you know? Right. Um, right. But I, I, I just have to think too, that there's not just the emotional side of it, but when you're reliving all those things, there's the muscle memory side of it as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and and there were certainly times when I began feeling really sick. Uh, and I think that it was about uh, writing about how sick I was. Uh, but I had to remind myself that now is now. And that was then. And now I'm healthy. I, my, all my blood work is good. Uh, my doctor keeps telling me, your blood thinks you're healthy. Uh, <laughs> so, I believe it. I well, believe it would it. know. Yeah, exactly. But see, that's that goes back again to, to the core foundation. It all comes down to that mindset. And if you're starting to think in terms of illness, you start feeling ill. You start you know, right. realizing, okay, I've got to separate you know, now from then. Exactly. You know, because your subconscious doesn't know the difference. It just knows what you're focusing on. Ah, uh, yes. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. so I, I think you're really on to something right there. Yeah. I really do. Well, I'm really glad that I'm, I've finished the, 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 the writing of it. You know, the editing is another task altogether. Sure. And I've been working on that nonstop, and, and I'm sure the work will continue but uh, uh, before it finally gets published. But uh, it's been a wonderful project to have over the last 18 months. Good. Well, I mean, how do you say this part of my life wasn't important enough to be in this book? You know, every part of your life is important enough to be in the uh, book. Exactly. And, and I'm fond of saying, you know, this wasn't my first plague. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, a lot of what a lot of my time actually was spent early on in the COVID and the pandemic uh, doing interviews about how AIDS can help us with what we're going through with COVID, how our experiences with AIDS can teach us about going through COVID and, and coping with it and all of that. And of course, there are so many parallels in terms of the fear and the the, the widespread oh conspiracy theories and 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 just paranoia and 
and real fear about the reality of it. Um, I, I had a friend die from COVID last summer who was so much like me physically uh, and uh, had a lot of the same underlying conditions. And it, it just scared me to death when he died. And the, the, the thing I, I kept trying to remember was, okay, Steve, remember what you learned in AIDS. You can be scared to death or you can be scared to life. Right. And scared to life means you take that fear and use it as motivation for taking care of yourself. Well, and I'm sure that you've had many moments, especially, you know, in the in the early 80s when all this was still new and people were trying to figure it out where you really were terrified. But it's not it's not bad to have those moments. It's turning them around. Right. Right. And and that's the trick that'll and that's what a lot of people don't get, unfortunately. I also have to say, Scott, that. As 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 positive as I was and as as determined as I was and as hope filled as I was and as much faith as I had, uh, all of which contributed to my still being here today, I believe I knew a lot of people who had as much, if not more faith, who worked as hard, if not harder than I did at getting well and staying well, who died from AIDS and. So I don't think it's quite as easy as just saying, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and uh, like Steve did, and, and therefore I will live. Right. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a, an element of, of grace, uh, luck, uh, bad luck, um, or maybe fate, you know, that, that determines how we experience illness. Um, uh, and uh, I always used to say that when Louise Hay would invite me to come speak to her hayride. Do you know about that? I don't. Okay. Louise Hay was this uh, very new age guru who, who had a huge following among people with AIDS and people who loved people with AIDS. Uh, she taught uh, that you that you create your own reality. And so if you created AIDS for yourself, then you can uncreate it. You can get well. You can create wellness. And of course, I did what she was trying to teach all these different people to do, get well from AIDS. And so she would have me come and speak to them. And I always, you know, she it would be a long time between invitations because I would always say that, you know, as as much as you try and as hard as you try and as much as you believe it's possible, you still might die. But the important thing is that you do the work of healing and whether you heal into life, as I did, or heal into death, as so many others did, at least you were healing as you died. Right. Oh, that's good. And it made, it made death more peaceful. Well, and, and I think that kind of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm really glad you shared that. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I appreciate the extra time, too. Do we have time to tell your Smithsonian story? Uh, yes, and then I do have to go, though. Okay, go uh, for it. <laughs> right. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, the summer of 2019, I, I was sitting with Troy Perry at church, and, and Troy being the founder and uh, the one-time moderator of the entire denomination, uh, he he had been contacted by the Smithsonian 
to contribute MCC artifacts to to give MCC's history to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington. And he and they asked him if he knew anybody in AIDS ministry who could contribute things about AIDS and AIDS ministry. And he said, oh, do I know somebody? The Reverend Steve <laughs> Peters, yes. Uh, he was the director of AIDS ministry for my denomination. So he asked me to put together a box full of stuff to send to the Smithsonian, and they would pick and choose what they wanted. So I packed a box full of all the newsletters. I wrote, I wrote a monthly newsletter called Alert and edited it, and and I wrote a bunch of articles, and I put all of them in, and all the resources we created for our churches, I put all of that in. And at the last moment, I noticed my fairy wand, and I thought, do I want to put that in? I don't know. I always carried my fairy wand when I spoke in public in, in the 80s and 90s because it reminded us that uh, it was important to believe in fairies because when you don't believe in fairies, fairies drop down dead, as we learn in Peter Pan. Sure. So uh, I carried my fairy wand to, to talk about how important it was with all of these good fairies and lost boys who were dying it was important for us to believe in ourselves and believe in each other enough to do the work of healing. And I carried that wand and it became kind of a symbol of hope. It not kind of, it, it was a symbol of hope for a lot of people. And so I, I decided at the last minute to throw it in the box uh, and thought, well, I probably not won't want it, but I gave a little, I typed out a little explanation about it and included that. Well, the Smithsonian, the curator there, loved it and said it, it crystallized the, the, what enabled us to get through the AIDS crisis. And, and uh, uh, so she uh, accepted it with great pleasure and was very excited about it. So my fairy wand, it's so amazing to me, the arc of my life. I was I was called a fairy so much. I was kidded about being a fairy. I was bullied uh, for being a fairy when I was six, seven years old. Wow. And to come to the point where the Smithsonian has my fairy wand with great glee, they took it. Uh, I'm just like overwhelmed with that. And I thought, uh, when we went to Washington and gave our items to the Smithsonian, there was a ceremony and all that. It was great. And uh, when when I flew home to L.A. from that, I thought, how am I ever going to top this? <laughs> Having my work put in my fairy bond put in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Oh, my God. And then this film about Tammy Faye came along. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess you got your answer, didn't you? <laughs> I got my answer. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for sharing. I think that's fantastic. And I, I would imagine that what you wrote about the wand is what really sold it to them, because just seeing the wand in the box, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But to to hear what it represented was really had to be what, what it was. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Well, I cannot thank you enough for your time, Steve. I am very excited about this movie. Check it out, folks. The Eyes of Tammy Faye will be coming out in September. Oh, and my original interview with Tammy Faye Baker can be seen on YouTube. Oh, Just excellent. Search, search on YouTube for Steve Peters and Tammy Baker. 
I will put that in the show notes as well. And I've got the trailer for the film. Uh, Steve, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you for your positive attitude for doing things that you would naturally do and changing people's lives by doing it, because that means everything, you know, to to show people that it's okay to be who they are is about the greatest gift that anybody can give in this world. And you've done it. I hope that this uh, movie will rekindle that for people and maybe reach a whole nother group. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, Scott. This was great. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. You take care of yourself, my friend. Have a great night and we'll, we'll keep an eye out for your stuff. All right. (laughs) Take care. You too. Bye. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Steve is a very brave man for taking on the challenge of facing Tammy Faye Baker live. Um, in that time frame, uh, I can't even imagine. But I love the positive attitude. I love that constant reinforcement of this is going to work out. Here's my intention. He's right. You can't just, you know, uh, positive yes your way through life. It doesn't really work that way. There's a lot more that goes with it. But I think he's on the right track. I think he's really on to something there. And obviously the results he's gotten has certainly proven that. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of the show. We will be back next week. Have a great week, guys. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.